You were listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Downtown Chinatown is sporting a facelift this morning after more than 200 people spent the weekend power washing, painting, and picking up litter. That's where we caught up with Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. All this week, we're checking in with mayors of all the counties as the COVID-19 case count hovers in the hundreds of cases due to the Delta variant. Here's what Mayor Blangiardi had to say on Saturday when I talked to him about the growing call for the governor to shut the state down again in response to the rising COVID spread. Well, you know, I think right now what they're trying to weigh is, you know, there's a lot of people who have been vaccinated and, and a lot of efforts gone on for a year and a half. We've now come up with a situation that's a little bit more than two weeks old and the surge of this COVID virus, this Delta variant. So at the end of the day right now, I know we're going to watch things very carefully this week. So what I would say is rather than criticize, things are very fluid. It's being monitored. And so in some regards, we're going to sort of expect the unexpected. Things could change as far as restrictions. So I don't want to be too harsh right now. We're trying to appeal, if you will, to the sensibility of people to get vaccinated because more than 90% of the people right now being admitted to the hospitals are unvaccinated. And so this is sending a message to that community or a group of people that are still holding out to please, in the spirit of community, to get themselves vaccinated. Now, the governor has indicated that uh, it's really going to be on the counties to kind of, uh, I don't know what's police the right word, but, you know, you've, Oahu has so many different types of businesses, everything from the luau's with the large gatherings with tourists, you know, to the small businesses that are just really, they just need a break. How are you looking at balancing that? Well, you know, yesterday morning we woke up and we found out we have now over a million people living on Oahu as residents. That's a lot of people to take care of, and there's a lot of, you know, it, it varies as we know from, you know, community to community or whatever. We've always been sensitive to our economic recovery. We've taken a broader definition of public health. It was extremely difficult when we were locked down, not just to tourism, but the businesses that were closed, businesses that were lost. So we're trying to balance that right now, a year and a half into this, with, like I said earlier, about a million eight vaccinations already being administered capability of doing much more. We've got over 400 locations here. We're trying to deal with it scientifically, if you will, while we allow people and businesses to go about their lives. You know, we have more than 80% of our people have, have now been vaccinated. That's a majority. So we're trying to balance that whole thing. That's unprecedented of how do we deal with a very mindful, responsible 80% and bring the other 20% of people who are holding back for whatever reason, be it education or otherwise, try to deal with that as best and most effectively as possible. How is the county going to address looking at the the plans that businesses are supposed to you know, present to prevent uh, The mitigation plans, yeah. Well, we're gonna review the mitigation plans for, for, for what's big, right? Right now, you've got 10 and 25. We're asking for plans for anything more than 50. We'll look at those, you know. I, to be very honest with you, Catherine, it's very difficult to enforce that. So much of what we have to do is about trust, you know, and, and people acting responsibly. This is not just like, um, this is just so different for all of us. I've been on this planet for a long time. None of us have lived through anything like this before. We live in a very diverse place, lots of small businesses, different kinds of operations. All we can possibly do is ask people to act responsibly and do the best they can. Do we have a plan for dealing with, let's say, weddings and funerals? I mean, right now, you know. Well, right now we have weddings and, plan and funerals going on as we've already had structured. You know, quite honestly, uh, throughout all this time, we've not seen any surges from those events. And the people who structure those events, the, whole, the funeral operators and the wedding planners and the other people executing have acted very, very responsibly. And the public is, is aware as well. So, you know, we're trying not to punish or set us back while we try to go forward through a very different, unexpected turn of events. Are you hearing anything more about when the FDA might give full approval for the vaccine? Well, we are. I'm, what I've heard just yesterday, that two weeks from yesterday, Friday, August 27th, we're hoping to get the Pfizer FDA approval. And it's always on the last Friday of the month. And I've even seen some national stories that say it's teed up to happen. So, you know, we're, we're, that should help with some people. It really should because people have said that to me. They're waiting for it because we've tried to talk with people who are not yet vaccinated. That is one of the things. So hopefully, and I can't calculate that, they'll have some really positive result. We think the rest of it from this point forward is ongoing education and, and the fact that people are looking at 
you know, the reality of what we're dealing with. We have positivity rates are more than positivity rates are more than double what they were before. Active cases are more than double. We're right now in the midst of something that is um, worse than any other point in the pandemic. The reality of that should be in and of itself motivating. As far as uh, the uh, union pushback. Are, are you thinking that maybe with the FDA approval that that will, you know, hold off? Well, we, we haven't sat down yet with the unions. I've written a letter to them. You know, just this week I had a meet with UPW and the firefighters to um, ask for the support of the fire department. They could come up with volunteers so we could properly staff our ambulances. We weren't able to keep all of our ambulances in operations. Bad enough ambulances were being diverted from hospitals, but we didn't have enough drivers. So now we have that ongoing. We have this agreement because we have over 100 licensed ambulance drivers in the fire department. So we came to that level of cooperation. So in addition to going to Queens and going to a COVID unit and talking to a team of doctors and nurses that have been working double shifts, there I was on the side also meeting with the fire department and our EMS to try to staff our ambulances accordingly, so in the business of saving lives. So it doesn't get any more real than that. So this was last week that we had a shortage of ambulance drivers? We now have, we're okay now because we're getting the help from the fire department. We had ambulance drivers out sick, you know, who got sick, taking care of sick people. Uh, I mean, sometimes people think, you know, they don't understand it. When, when, when they get sick, they, they don't get sick alone. They're expecting somebody to take care of them and not just family. And if they're really sick, you know, they're calling ambulances and wanting to go into hospitals. And, and there's a reality to that because that's a finite resource for us. That's what we're begging people to try to understand. I asked the doctors, what do these people say to come in here who've not been vaccinated now that they get you and you have to admit them to the hospital? It's not outpatient, you're admitting them. They also, he said, Rick, they all say the same thing. I should have been vaccinated. They're suddenly worried, am I gonna die? It's a complete reversal of what you might expect somebody now facing a situation that could be deadly that they're placed into. So all we're trying to do is get out in front of that and have people avoid that kind of a mishap. Well, Mayor, thank you very much for your time today. Catherine, you're more than welcome. Thank you. That was Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. We talked with him on Saturday about the growing strain on our health care system, in particular our first responders. We will be talking with Dr. Jim Ireland, Director of Honolulu's Emergency Medical Services, this afternoon and plan to have that for the show tomorrow. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about the beating death of a prisoner at the hands of his cellmate. The details uncovered are troubling. Reporter Kevin Dayton joins us today. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. So this case dates back to 2019. Yes, it does. It's a story about a jail inmate over at Oahu Community Correctional Center uh, who was attacked by another inmate. Um, the prison system never publicly announced the death, and the case has led to a, to a series of interesting questions about what the Hawaii prison system discloses when inmates die. And that would include, in cases like this, when inmates are murdered. Now, the man who died was Jacob Russell? Correct. 56 years old. And on November 19, uh, 2019, he was in jail after pleading guilty to auto theft and some other theft charges. He had his sentencing delayed because his lawyer was concerned that uh, Mr. Russell was not understanding the proceedings because of a mental condition. So while he was waiting for sentencing is when he was actually attacked. He was beaten by another inmate named uh, Peyton Huff, who was 28 at the time, and Huff um, stomped on Russell's head during the assault, and that left him in a coma. And then he finally died at the jail on Christmas morning of uh, 2019 in a hospice facility that is set up at OCCC, or was set up at least at that time. So uh, in the case of these two men, I mean, both of them had what, some mental, a history of mental illness? Correct. Um, both of them had, um, it'll come out later that, that Mr. Huff also had a mental condition, and for that reason he was acquitted um, by reason of mental incapacity last week, which is why this comes up now. Now, you might think this case was kind of newsworthy, something the public ought to know about, but in fact the prison system said nothing publicly about it. Russell's death only came to light after a media request was made for information about all deaths inside the correctional system under a new law that was known as Act 234. 
And that law was the result of a lobbying effort by prison reformers, such as uh, Community Alliance on Prisons and others, who've been concerned that there just isn't enough information coming out about deaths in correctional facilities. So in this case, the first time that the media, as far as we know, used this new law to review prison death cases, it turns up a murder that nobody knew about. Um, and that obviously raises some additional concerns. Um, it's also stirred up a great deal of interest locally among critics who think there needs to be greater disclosure of information in these cases and at least some level of accountability when inmates die. And that would, of course, include you know murders and suicides. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the case in particular... Um, Gosh, I mean, was it reported to the lawmakers, to authorities? It was. There, there is a report that is filed under Act 234 that the governor, uh, the prison system is required to make to the governor and then also to legislators. When the legislators released these reports, including the one involving Mr. Russell, they were immediately warned by the prison system that these reports are not public and cannot be made public. So in other words, the prison system basically was trying to claw back information and to, to block that flow of information from coming out. The reason that the prison system gives for this policy is that the prison system says, the prison and jail says that it is subject to a law called HIPAA, a federal law that was passed in 1996. And it says that uh, HIPAA pro prohibits the system from releasing any identifiable medical information about the inmates that are in its care death is deemed to be a, a identifiable piece of medical information, and therefore the prison system insists that it must withhold that. It's interesting to note um, that for years the prison system has released uh, names of inmates who died inside when reporters, when the media would inquire about specific cases. Um, but they're no longer doing that. They've rolled, they've backpedaled on that policy. And this, this case is one particular example of, of what comes out of that. So what does the ACLU think about all this? The ACLU is concerned. They, they feel that there, that there needs to be uh, additional reporting and additional information distributed to the, Republic, to the public because when information comes out about a case, be it a suicide, uh, you know, a death by COVID, for example, and we've had nine of those in the correctional system so far, or, or a murder, that there's a level of accountability that the public should be demanding of the prison system. And if they don't know about the cases, no, there's not going to be any outcry. There's not going to be any pressure put on the system to make changes to prevent those kinds of cases from happening in the future. So, yeah, all this secrecy, um, yeah, it, it, it is a, a little troubling. I think people think that if nothing else, you're going to tell us when somebody dies. And the prison system um, is not doing that. And so, yeah, we just had this uh, latest uh, uh, decision handed down last week. On this case? Correct. Uh, Judge Rowena Somerville ruled that uh, Mr. Huff, who was the attacker, and he acknowledged that he did attack um, Mr. Russell, um, that he was not responsible for his actions because he also had a number of mental conditions, um, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and so on. And because of that, he was deemed to be not competent at the time of the attack and therefore has been committed to Hawaii State Hospital for further treatment. Okay. Well, interesting story. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Head to civilbeat.org to read the story. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. For centuries, a large community of Jews thrived in the city of Mosul in northern Iraq. But in the 1950s, most of them fled to Israel. They left by choice. As far as I'm concerned, the Jews were expelled. Iraqi Jews in the diaspora now sharing their stories with an Iraqi historian working to preserve Mosul's Jewish past. It's on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Did you know it's National Rum Day? Rum is an alcoholic concentrate made from the fermented juice of sugarcane, sugarcane molasses, or other sugarcane byproducts. Bartenders most often use it in fruity cocktails like the Blue Hawaiian or a Mai Tai. And with Hawaii's storied history in the sugar industry, it makes perfect sense that there are rum distilleries here in the Aloha State. And even with the mass production of sugarcane long gone, small crops of local sugarcane, or ko as it's known in the Hawaiian language, are grown for use by local rum distillers. So, for today's quiz, we're testing what you know about rum production in Hawaii. There are rum distilleries on all of the major islands, but which one has been in operation the longest? Is it Kuleana Rum Works on the Big Island, Kohana Distillers in Kunia, Koloa Rum Company on Kauai or the Kalani Distil- Distillers on Maui. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. It was a conversation we planned to have when John Fries took over as head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. He is the first Native Hawaiian to get into the driver's seat. We were intrigued to learn he was born and raised in Waikiki, and there were hopes that he could bring a sensitivity to the post because of that perspective. How do we create a better experience for visitors and residents, particularly when we know this pandemic is far from being over? Can we really manage tourists? How do we reduce the influx of visitors from the record 10 million we saw just before the pandemic hit? We began our conversation on the Diamond Head side of Waikiki at the end of a tiny street known as Cartwright that some years ago, John DeFries called home. We had to dodge delivery vans, buses, and mopeds. So we're standing here on Cartwright, right where your house used to be. <laughs> so tell us about that. 551 Cartwright Road, which today there is a what amounts to be an you know, equivalent of a four-story apartment complex, which at one time our family home was here. So um, it was myself. I had two younger brothers at that time, my parents, bunch of uncles it was a pretty substantial house and and I would imagine there were at least like 12 adults in there on two different floors including my parents and um, and so this was you know front yard we had an emu I I can recall a lot of social events here and uh, it served as kind of a family hub and, and the emu you know, it was my grandfather's pride and joy and was used quite often. People from the neighborhood could hear it, they could smell it, and then a couple of them would bring their ethnic dish to put in the emu. And, uh, but this was very local. I mean, there were, we had Japanese neighbors, Chinese, Portuguese, Samoan, Hawaiian, you know, and people talk about international conferences and conventions that come to Hawaii and I said you know on Cartwright Road it was like an international 
convention. Today we're standing here in this lot. There's high rises yeah, down high either rises. end. Yeah, there was nothing at that time more than two stories, right? And I can remember on Lemon Road, the apartment complex. So what for me as a child was watching the first kind of high rise and maybe it was seven or eight floors, you know, and, uh, and I thought it was bigger than life. Uh, but here we are, what, 69 years later. Well, you've got mopeds, you've got delivery trucks, you've got yeah, you've got the Hyatt Hotel across the way. Uh, but you went to Jefferson Elementary School. Went to Jefferson Elementary. The school is about a block and a half from our home, so it's easy to walk to and from. Went there from kindergarten through the sixth grade. And then what was notable about the campus was there, it doesn't stand anymore, but there was a major administration building in the middle of the campus, principal's office, infirmary, that kind of. And my grandfather was the contractor who actually built it, right? So our family has kind of deeply rooted in, in Waikiki in that sense. And uh, there are a lot of Hawaiian families. I mean, uh, the Kalima family, the Jesse Kalima family, uh, were music notables were there. And there was a famous steel guitar player and composer named Johnny Alameda. Very, very uh, prolific uh, composer. He lived there too, and there was a period of about a year where I took steel guitar lessons from him. So, you know, Waikiki, at, think about it now, within a thousand yard radius from where we lived, you had the beach, of course, you had the zoo, you had the aquarium, you had the Queen Surf nightclub, and then there was a polo field in the middle of Kapiolani Park. And where the tennis courts are today at Diamond Head was a horse stables, which then moved to Waimanalo to make way for the, the tennis. And then you also had a golf driving range. You had Waikiki Shell, the fire department, the library. You had recreational boating at that time in the Alawai. So for a young kid growing up, I mean, you know, it was like Disneyland. Um, you know, in addition to what was happening in the Eva direction as hotels were beginning to, um, to be built. So, you know, when I think about Waikiki in that sense, in that those from birth to 11, um, it, holds a very special place actually um, and, and it's ironic that I'm kind of like back here right after 30 years in Kona um, so it goes it feels like full circle to me well you shared with me that uh, you were Mayday King at, at the elementary school <laughs> Mr. Aloha I mean you're kind of doing the same thing <laughs> Actually, in the second grade and in the sixth grade. So pe people say, how do you get it in the second grade? I said, maybe I was the biggest guy on the campus in the second grade, too. But no, I, yeah, that was part of the whole cultural, you know, thing. So, you know, what was big then when I was growing up was uh, wrestling, local wrestling. And, uh, and one guy who was very... Uh, well-known was a guy named Lord Tallyho Blears. And he had a daughter named Laura, who was in my second grade class. 
and then ended up at Punahou, and we both graduated together. So Laura and I have known each other a long time. Her son Dylan Ching is the executive in charge of TS Restaurants, which includes Dukes on the beach. He's still a part of Waikiki. He's still a big part of Waikiki, as was his grandfather, um, Lord Bleers. And then I believe the family moved out to Makaha. They were a big surf family as well. So yeah, those are kind of the things that come to mind back then. You know, I th the point I want to make is that it was a, a very local neighborhood, you know. And I, when I think about the visitor experience today as compared to that early period, you know, and I've read a number of studies that talk about the fact that, you know, Waikiki in some ways has lost a kamaina charm because there are no local families in, in that fabric, right? And, uh, but I can remember a time when there was. During the pandemic, I would walk through here, you know, during the last year and a half, uh, and I saw how wonderfully crowd-free it was. It was delightful to be back on the beach again. Sure. And I told my kids, you better go out there now. Well, you know, well, there's, there's plenty of room. And then I just was walking uh, along the beach yesterday and was just really kind of shocked. I mean, I knew, yeah. you know, the crowds were back, yeah. but I think when you're actually in there and you see how different it is and... and uh, and it is a different experience. You know, it is. And, and I think what's important to note right now is that there really is no competition, right? I mean, the international destinations that typically compete for the same market that we do in tourism are not open. I mean, headlining that list we saw the last two weeks is Japan in the Olympics, right? When you decide to go forward with the games with no audience, I mean, I don't even want to think about how much that costs. But what I'm saying is that Hawaii right now has no real competition. When that competition returns, my instinct says you'll start to see this stabilize. There'll be an adjustment, a market yeah, adjustment. There will be a, the, the market will have to adjust because what's going to happen is when they return to the market, they're going to have to compete. They're going to go heavy with discounts. They're going to go, and what you're going to see is a number of airlines that redirect air seats currently coming into Hawaii, now being redirected back to the international destinations. So, um, you know, in the meantime, I think nine months, ten months ago when I started at HDA, the one thing I don't think any of us factored was the fact that we would re-emerge in the absence of that competition. And so it's created this, like, windfall. Not all of it's pretty. And, and it's creating, you know, some conflicts in key areas that, that we still have to manage. But, you know, I... I, I use this metaphor really to talk about the system of tourism but it's like when you turn off your house plumbing for 10 months when you turn it back on you don't want to drink the first water <laughs> this is true <laughs> you know and then and but but you also don't want to condemn the, the source from where that water is coming from because the system needs to flush itself right and and it's kind of the way i view this um i don't expect everybody to appreciate that but I knew that the reopening of tourism and the economy was not going to be mere flipping of the switch, right? This was going to open uneven. The industry as a, a system, again, a delivery system of services, you know, it got injured um, in the last 17, 18 months. And by that I mean, you know, you're shutting off wings of your hotel or you're shutting the whole thing down. You yeah, know, it's traumatized. You're, you're laying off a whole bunch of people and the community and the industry has gone through an incredible shock. It's going to take us several months to get through this and then this Delta variant is another curveball that, that we have to take really seriously because um, you're beginning to see the governor and mayors begin to 
dial back some of the freedoms that we had. I won't predict what's going to happen, but it's all going to be driven by data. And we just have to be ready to be really responsive because um, when professionals are saying we're in worse shape today than we were a year ago, that's really unsettling, right? Um, no, it is yeah, because yeah. we're tired. Everybody's <laughs> we're fatigued. all tired and we're, and we're maybe we're not thinking up. straight. We want our freedoms back and we're bound that type of condition leads to you know at times careless behavior so we got to tighten all that up we will continue our walk and talk through waikiki with john defries head of the hta uh, we'll be right back after a short break Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific Institute's School of the Arts, offering intensive and immersive arts training, now accepting applications for the 2022-2023 school year. Midpac.edu. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves is extending a state of emergency order that was set to expire Sunday. The state is posting record numbers of new COVID cases, and doctors warn Mississippi's hospital system is on the brink of collapse. We'll talk about the pandemic in Mississippi now and what it'll take to turn things around. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. HTA's John DeFries and I continue to walk down toward the beach. We stopped at the corner of Kalakaua and Kapahulu. The day before, I had walked along the beach, ending up at the Halekolani Hotel, which is still closed but will reopen October 1st. Hundreds of tourists jammed into the Sheraton Waikiki Pool, and the beach in front of the Royal Hawaiian looked like Coney Island again. Those months that local residents dominated the landscape were gone. DeFries acknowledged that next week, transportation officials will open the new Honolulu Airport concourse that will add potentially 11 new gates to welcome more tourists. So the, the capacity to receive visitors is actually expanding as we speak at a time when uh, communities throughout our state are calling for less time out, uh, enough, right? So now we have the task of having to reconcile the investment that's been made by state airports. I'm sure the planning and design, you know, probably goes back a decade, right? When, when you understand procurement and all that, right? So 10 years ago, that was like a profound idea, right? And, but we're gonna, nonetheless, we're going, it's, a, it's an investment that the state of Hawaii has made, the people of Hawaii have made it, right, with tax dollars and, and federal dollars. So um, we're, we're having to learn how to reconcile that kind of movement. And I knew coming into HTA 10 months ago that whatever change we were, would contemplate or initiate was going to happen inside a free enterprise system. Now, the point I want to emphasize is that, again, tourism is not just a standalone entity. It actually is held together by infrastructure that is county government, state government, federal government, private sector. So it's going to be critical that leaders from all of those entities come together and agree on some kind of vision for Hawaii's future. This time we need to push it out to a, to a point where we can actually start to contemplate 
this not in terms of years or decades, but in terms of generations. What's it going to take? What's life going to be like for the folks three generations from now? And, and the, the fact is that I hold that elected officials and business leaders and community leaders have the capacity to see that far because it's where their great-grandchildren will live. And we do need to take the time and look at what we see in that long view, right? So the, not, to, not to oversimplify it, but if I said to 100 Kama'aina who I don't know, if I said to them, hey, three generations from now, would you like to see the natural resource base of Hawaii in better condition then than it is today? I have no doubt in my mind all 100 will say yes. Um, if I said, do you want to see Hawaiian language and Hawaiian traditions and culture flourishing to a greater degree three generations from now than it is doing today, you know, chances are everybody would agree to that. And they'd agree to uh, wanting to protect our Kama'aina way of life, right? So for the short view, yeah. you know, I mean, when you took over at HTA, uh, you, you probably had no way of looking into the crystal ball to see that lawmakers wanted to rethink the funding of HTA. How yeah. do you reconcile that for the short term? But I encourage everybody to understand that there is, it's a fragile system that you can lose markets as quickly as you can get them. So we just have to pay attention to it. I understand the pushback. I understand the concern. You know, one legislator told me, John, six million visitors but generate the same tax revenue but i think you know when when people look at hawaii tourism you want to look at your own behavioral patterns as well when you travel out of state right do you really say well, i don't think i should go there because i don't spend enough per day and i, I know that it's easier said than done that you we only want high spending visitors here right we have some immediate challenges that we've got to deal with and manage. We've got some mid-range things to watch out and see this market correction that happens when the competition uh, comes back. Our own infrastructure is being tested. Things like our water capacity, right, are going to define where that threshold is. What makes me optimistic is the young leaders I see in the two generations behind me who are uh, akamai, caring, much more tuned in to nature and the environment, still idealistic enough to believe that there can be a better way. So working with that uh, age group is actually what inspires me most right now. So you're hopeful? Yeah, oh God, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I wanna tell you one thing about, about Kapahulu Avenue. Kapahulu used to be a stream that was actually fed from Palolo and that whole St. Louis Heights and that end of Manoa. But I can remember my, my uncles talking to me about how when the stream was here, they used to be able to bring their fishing gear on inflated tubes and floaters and they could just throw the nets into the stream and then the, the stream would carry it out to, to the ocean, right? Now it's all asphalt. Now it's all asphalt. Down to the wall. There, there's an iconic song, they, they paved paradise, put up a parking lot, Joni Mitchell. So what most people don't know is Joni Mitchell came to Hawaii in 1970 and stayed at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. And when she opened the drapes in her room, the, the, the curtains, she saw this massive parking lot. And that's what inspired the, that song. the people a dollar and a half just to see them don't it always seem to go that
but you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay fair lies, put up a parking lot. You know, and she talks about um, they took all the trees and put them in a tree museum. They charged a dollar and a half just to see them. It's her trip to Foster Botanical Garden. Ah. And then in, in the lyrics, it talks about a, 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 a pink hotel, a boutique, and a, I forget the actual lyrics, but she's actually capturing her experience back then. So think about that. Think about one independent traveler who in 1970, 52 years ago, was beginning to express a concern over the impact to the natural environment. A tourist, not somebody who lived here. And so, so the little boy that grew up on Cartwright, yep. he's an older guy now. <laughs> what does that, he see? That, well, that little, that little boy still lives with him. Um, my wife will attest to that, uh, and my sister. But what, what I see is the, the urgency for us to be able to convene and adopt a vision for Hawaii. Hawaii deserves it. Hawaii deserves a vision. And, and part of that vision is where tourism is related. And, and this is something that I've discussed at length with Navigator Nainoa Thompson, right? Uh, right after he came home from the worldwide voyage and he had seen, you know, parts of the world and he felt this way before he left, but it reconfirmed it when he came home is that the world needs a school to teach the people of the world how to live in better harmony with your, your, yourselves, your family, your neighborhood, your environment. And that people like myself and him kind of believe that uh, Hawaii has that potential. We're not gonna get there overnight, but again, when I reference some of the work going on in communities, nonprofit organizations that are beginning to restore lo'i, restore the natural flow of fresh water. All of that is signaling a shift. The challenge is how do we help that scale, right? As an industry, what can we learn from that? Now, what that little boy that lived in Waikiki sees today is that there are certain areas, especially in the natural environment, some of these areas need time each year to replenish itself, to reproduce, right? And, and we have to be bold enough in industry to say X amount of weeks, this time of the year, every year, this is closed off to human activity. We have to be able to demonstrate that kind of restraint, right? And it is the 21st century version of the kapu, right? And the kapu, that I learned from the elders in my family. It wasn't about human deprivation. It wasn't like you as a human being are deprived from eating that fish. It was about recognizing that that fish during that time of the year in this area reproduces. And so give them space, give them time. So we, we do have to adopt that attitude. I think it's about relearning how to live on an island. And that's what we've forgotten. We behave like we live on continents. The way we consume, the way we create waste, uh, the way we treat waste. And I actually believe that over the next generation or two, the visitor market is going to actually arc in that direction. They're gonna look for that in making their choices of where to go, right? And, um, and so when you can get human consciousness to elevate followed by human action and measurable results, and you can get a commercial market to buy into that, then Hawaii will be on its way to reachieving some level of balance here. We all want a better experience for everybody. That's right. That's what we have in common. Yeah. yeah. And, and some of the conflicts we're experiencing now in tourism actually emanates from bad behavior by the visitor, right? Touching the wildlife and not respecting certain things. And I'm talking to frontline restaurant and hotel workers who, who see a difference in the clientele that they once served. And, and many of them point to 
this greater sense of entitlement, right? And I think part of that is a result of being living under restrictions for more than a year and and having to, you know, take account of yourself and the, the way you act. Um, I guess if, if the May Day King still had his crown on, the crown is heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what makes me hopeful is the fact that I went to University of Hawaii for three semesters when I left, I had more parking tickets than credits. So tourism for me is very much like a university. It, it, it's a place, it wasn't because I didn't want to learn. It's just that I wasn't cut out at that time in the 70s to be at the university, um, even though I have a tremendous respect for the university today. Well, this is the university. This is the <laughs> University of Waikiki. You know, you know a, a close friend of mine, was my mother's high school classmate was Don Hall. I used to refer to Don as the dean of the University of Waikiki. Yeah, because there, there's so much to learn. The point I want to make is I'm also somewhat protective of the industry because in, in many ways it's like my alma mater, right? It's the university I went to. It has problems right now and I'm committed to helping lead in solving those problems. Do you remember that was John DeFries, the first Native Hawaiian to lead the Hawaii Tourism Authority during what may be the visitor industry's most challenging time. DeFries was born and raised in Waikiki and was sharing stories about growing up there, and he is sharing his hopes for the future. As a summer breeze, your sweet laughter. Well, this is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. A telescope atop Haleakala has discovered a new comet streaking across our galaxy. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares when you may be able to see it with the naked eye in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. And as usual, we're thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips joining us right now here on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the eastern sky after sunset. Both planets are quite bright and should be easy to spot. The moon this week will be moving through its first quarter phase, which of course means conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And I understand this week you have a comet discovery based right here in the state of Hawaii? Indeed. Astronomers using the PanStars telescope atop Haleakala on the island of Maui have discovered a distant comet that is making its way into the inner solar system. The comet, which is currently known by its catchy catalogue name of 2021-03, may get bright enough during its close approach to the sun to be seen with the naked eye right here in Hawaii. And what's the time frame for that? It should be May 22nd of next year. And what's the story with the comet possibly passing too close to the sun? Well, it's currently unknown just how close it will get, but if it does get very close to the sun, it's quite possible that this comet will simply just melt away. And that would mean we wouldn't be able to see it? We may get treated to the view of a bright cloud of gas and dust, basically all that remains of the comet, but even that isn't guaranteed at that stage. Got it. And so PanStars looks at a lot of different stuff, too. Explain the difference for folks between comets and asteroids. Well, comets are predominantly composed of ice with a little bit of dust and dirt thrown in for good measure, basically like giant dirty snowballs. Asteroids, on the other hand, are composed of rock and metal. However, they are both leftover construction material from the creation of the planets, essentially. And probably the obvious question for some, any potential threat from this thing? Not at all. Not by a long shot. The comet is a benign celestial visitor that will, at best, provide us with a great show next year, or at worst, melt away if it gets too close to the sun. This is one of those shows that Mother Nature likes to put on for us every now and again, and all we have to do is just sit back and enjoy it. We appreciate the heads up from you, Christopher Phillips, another fun Stargazer. Thanks. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Kaka'ako Innovation Block, housing the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation's Entrepreneur Sandbox. FerraroChoi.com Happy National Rum Day. Do you have a favorite cocktail made from the spirit derived from sugar cane? Well, earlier in the show, we listed four local distilleries and asked you to tell us which one had been in operation in Hawaii the longest. First on the list, Kuleana Rum Works, founded in 2013, and sources sugar cane juice from native Hawaiian heirloom uh, sugar cane grown on its farm and distilled uh, in Kauai on Hawaii Island. Second was Kohana's Distillers, which began operations in 2011 in Kunia on Oahu. Third on the list is uh, Koloa Rum Company. It's one of the oldest rum producers in the state, having produced its first batch on Kauai in 2009. But the oldest rum distillery in Hawaii and the answer to today's backyard quiz is D, Kalani Distillers, located in Maui. It first released Old Lahaina Rum in 2009 after starting production in 2005. And if you're in the mood for celebrating National Rum Day today, you might want to support local and give one of our Hawaii companies a try. No winners today, but that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that's a wrap. Today, uh, tomorrow, we hear from Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami and Jim Ireland, head of the Honolulu Emergency Medical Services. Have you been affected by the strain on our health care system? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>